Great. Okay, back to, did you find Acts chapter 4? The story so far, um, actually, let's go back to Luke's earlier book, the Gospel of Luke, the story of the last few weeks, the, the, in the few weeks before Acts chapter 4, Jesus was crucified. As Jesus was crucified, as he was tried, arrested, and executed, the disciples all ran away. And then Jesus rose gloriously from the dead. They were astonished. Uh, then he went back into heaven. They received the Holy Spirit. This has all gone on in the last couple of chapters that we've been looking at. They received the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. They spoke in tongues. The same spirit that enabled them to speak in tongues came on Peter, that he could preach with effect. Loads of people joined them. At the end of Acts chapter 2, there's a little summary statement about the quality of life that they enjoyed together. A radical community who were caring for one another, where the life of the spirit was there in abundance, where the people were devoted to the Lord. And uh, last, the last chapter we looked at, Acts chapter 3, began to open up in more detail that strand of their quality of life, which was miraculous, because Peter and John went to the temple and a, a crippled beggar asked them for money and they said, no, we haven't got any of that, uh, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk, and he was healed. And he was someone who sat at the gate beautiful in the center of the temple between the court of Gentiles and the court of um, women where loads and loads of people would have seen him. For 40 years he'd been a cripple and people were astonished and they said this is an outstanding miracle. Not just a normal miracle but an outstanding miracle and people were praising God and thanking God. And that's where we got to at the end of Acts chapter 3. The people were astonished and Peter had began to explain again what was going on. His speech at the end of Acts chapter 3 comes to a dead halt. He doesn't get to finish it. He doesn't get to wrap it up neatly and give a summary statement and appeal for a response because the temple authorities interrupt him. They recognize that there's a disturbance going on and the Jews have been given a fair bit of freedom to control for themselves the temple precincts. They've been given that freedom by the Romans, but on a strict understanding that there would be no disorder. And the way that the Romans had of dealing with disorder was to crucify whoever was involved in instigating it. So there's been a miracle of healing, an outstanding miracle. People gather, there's excitement. Peter's preaching, there's a crowd. Of course, in this circumstance, the next thing that happens is the temple guards turn up to find out what the disturbance is, like very, very proactive riot police. So here we are at the beginning of Acts chapter 4. We're going to read as far as verse 31. It says that the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem 
Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucify, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He, that is Jesus, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they've done an outstanding miracle and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, saying, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you'd anointed They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. It's a good story, isn't it? 
As I've been preparing for this morning, one of the things that has struck me is just how contemporary a feel these events have. The situation, am I clicking by the way? The situation that they were in um, feels so much like the situation that we're in today. Let me try and explain that. Because firstly, one of the things that went on was that they were lumped unfairly with other groups. don't know whether you noticed that, but in verse 2, the thing that bothered the authorities, first of all, was that they were proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. If you jump forward into Acts 23, when Paul was then before the Sanhedrin, when it was his turn, he managed to divide the Sanhedrin into two warring factions simply by mentioning the resurrection. Because in the Sanhedrin, there was a body of Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection and a body of Pharisees who did. And together, the Sanhedrin had authority in that place. And what we see here is they're speaking about the resurrection of Jesus and the Sadducees come running. Not the Pharisees, the Sadducees come running because it looks to all the world, to them, like the Pharisees, their opponents, the other political party, actually it's kind of like right wing and left wing, it was the left wing that was believing in resurrection and the right wing guys come out because it looks like there's a left wing crowd being whipped up and they respond to Peter and John as if they as if they are members of this resurrection party because what troubles them is that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead not that they were proclaiming Jesus resurrection it's like they haven't quite got hold of who they really are they've not really taken time to understand what these people are saying but they've picked up a little something and they've lumped them into an existing category of their understanding i think that is quite familiar for us today just a couple of months ago rowan williams soon to be ex archbishop of canterbury noted that it's often assumed that vicars are imams in dog collars or imams are vicars in turbans. That is to say, all people of faith are just kind of lumped together. And I think it's absolutely the case for us as Christians that a lot of the opposition that we feel to the gospel of Christ is not actually about us. And it's not actually about what we are saying. It's that some of the things that we say press buttons in people's heads and they think, you sound to me like a religious fundamentalist who wants to take over the world by force. Or you sound like the kind of person that uh, is really very judgmental. Or you sound like you're homophobic. Or you sound, whatever it might be. And we get lumped in, even today, just as they were back then, with categories of people that we don't belong to. Yeah? I'm sure that that's your experience. And it causes us to worry about what people will think if we say what we think. Another thing that's really, really contemporary here is that the Sanhedrin end up 
saying, really, your works are okay. I mean, you've healed this guy. I mean, that's cool, actually. They don't say that. But they do acknowledge it's an outstanding miracle and that there's nothing that could be said against it. But they say, whilst accepting the goodness of this work, this act of mercy, uh, could you not talk about it, please? And we hear that today as well, don't we? Uh, there's almost like there's this internal conflict that we see the, uh, the government having and funding bodies that, that fund Christian activities having. They appreciate the good that's being done, um, but they ask us, please, if we could just not talk about our faith whilst we're doing it. Um, the chair of the charity Chapel Street, with whom we're working on this Tyndale School application, uh, her name is Baroness Sherlock. She's a, a Labour life peer and um, became a Christian whilst being the chair of the Refugee Council. She was the chair of the Refugee Council, not a Christian. Actually, she'd been to a Catholic school and reacted against all of the religious stuff. And so quite, quite, you know, not a Christian. And but started travelling around her country in her role as chair of the Refugee Council, visiting the different projects that were run to support refugees, and discovered that they were pretty much all run by churches. And thought, there's something in all of this. And it started her on a journey to faith, personal faith for herself. And uh, lots of people looking on at the church say, it's great all the stuff that you do. Uh, our church in Kidlington, Lifehouse, who are meeting in Kidlington this morning, uh, run the youth provision for the village of Kidlington. It's a village of 20,000 people. It's uh, therefore not a very typical village. But when the county council, due to public spending cuts, stopped running any youth work anymore for the youth of Kidlington, Lifehouse stepped forward to pick it up. And people say, thank you. That's really, even given them some money. The, the big society fund has given them just recently, in the last week, I think they got the check for £10,000 to buy shiny new games consoles and things, which is obviously what youth work requires. Um, so there's an appreciation of that, but also an expectation that Jesus will be kept out of it. And uh, I don't know how many of you have heard this story, but um, some friends of ours, Frog and Amy or Ewing, who now live... Uh, just this side of London, and are planting a church there. But um, Frog was the vicar of Peckham. And there's this great little story of how, just as with the church we've planted on the Lees, the Lees Youth Programme that are good friends with the Lees Community Church, there's loads of money that people will spend on churches to run youth work. The same thing was going on for them in Peckham, running loads of youth work from the church in Peckham, paid for by lottery grants and Um, children in need and so on. And one of their funders came along and said to them, uh, we've come to inspect what you do and to check that it meets all of our equality and diversity policies. We'd just like to check that you're not talking about Jesus as you do all of this. And uh, with what can only be described as a spirit-given word of wisdom, Frog turned around and said, so you're asking me to discriminate, are you? Because we've got a good news message and you're asking me only to give it to the Christians and to discriminate on religious grounds 
and not give it to anyone else? Is that what you're asking for? For me to, for us to write a new discrimination policy into our youth work practice? And the woman said, no, that's not what I'm asking for. And uh, by the grace of God, their freedom just to honestly be themselves was maintained. But if the Sanhedrin said, we like your works, but could you keep quiet about your faith? We've got exactly, exactly the same thing going on. So, so these events seem to me incredibly contemporary to us in their field. There's another thing. Actually, the authorities here, they have pretty mixed feelings about the freedom of speech. Because on the one hand, they thought that they might want to impose a blanket ban on speaking about Jesus. But the apostles' answer to them was actually to appeal to their better judgment. Uh, Peter says, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. So he's asking them to think again to judge for them, to, to rethink it, to review the decision that they've just made. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. He's making a very, very reasonable point that, in effect, the Sanhedrin were asking for them to be hypocrites. They were saying, could you please keep that part of your lives private and not tell us about it? And, again, that's so much what life can be like today. It's a different sort of motive that lies behind it. Today, the concern about freedom of speech, or the mixed feelings that we have about freedom of speech, are on the one hand, this is not just talking about the church, but in society as a whole, there's a desire to, to avoid censorship as much as possible because we believe in the freedom of speech. It's a Christian value that's inherent in our society. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a real concern that people will be offended which has led to some occasional extremes like Christmas being replaced by Winter Festival or something, or people taking Easter, you know, cards companies removing Easter cards from their sales displays in case it might offend someone. And there's this tension about the freedom of speech, which is still being worked out, isn't it, today, in the political sphere. The politicians aren't quite sure how to handle it. No one seems to have found a settled wisdom, there is a mixed feeling about the freedom of speech. On the one hand, we don't want to close people down and stop them being able to say what's true out of their experience and is on their hearts. On the other hand, there's a bit of a worry about what people might say, whether it might incite hatred, for example, whether it might incite people to violence and so on. So again, this sort of mixed feeling about the freedom of speech is incredibly up-to-date and describes a facet of our lives today. Uh, this summer, there's not going to be uh, the normal Sunday morning Love Oxford gathering. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, but what we are doing instead is we're going to participate in the celebrations that go on when the Olympic torch comes through the city. So that's, the torch is coming through on the 9th of July... And what has, what the situation we became aware of as church leaders in the city was that the count, the, sorry, the city council had been landed with the expectation of putting on a kind of jamboree to celebrate the Olympic torch coming through, but they didn't have a budget for it because no one had told them about it far enough ahead in their budget setting process. 
and they're therefore a bit stuck. So what happened with Love Oxford this year was we approached the city council and said, well, look, if the churches pay for the stage and the sound system and everything and therefore enable a proper celebration to occur of this you know, once-in-a-lifetime event, then can we also then just have the stage for ourselves for half an hour, have some gospel singing. Uh, we've got a, an Olympic, uh, uh, a Christian Paralympian to interview who lives in the city. You know, that, can we, we'll do that kind of thing as part of the program. It's really, really interesting, because they thought that was quite a good idea initially. Uh, they went, then went to the... <laughs> they then went to the, the wonderfully named LOCOG, uh, the London... What is it? London Organising Committee for the Olympic Games, LOCOG, and said, um, we've got a plan. And LOCOG said, um, you're not allowed to have any one religion involved in anything to do with the Olympic Games. And uh, I don't know if you saw the thing in the news this week. They tried to, <laughs> they tried to design a badge that all of the Olympic chaplains would wear. Um, Which is, um, the initial idea was that they got nine, they got the symbols of nine world religions and stuck them all on one badge. And then they realized that wouldn't work, both because they'd left some off and also because, um, there were some people who weren't happy wearing the symbol of another religion. So basically it just didn't work. So they've got the badge now just says faith on it. Um, I mean, it's a gen- to be fair, it's a genuinely tricky question, isn't it? I mean, I don't know what you would do. It's a bit tricky. And the London Organising Committee of the Olympic Games has said, as far as any events that go to, you know, to do with the torch relay, basically, no religion allowed. Basically, it's just too complicated. So let's not have any religion, please. And so then there was a very interesting meeting with the city council where they said, um, sorry, but I don't think we can do it to which um, the representative of Love Oxford, one of the other pastors in the city, said, well, so what you're saying is, in effect, the Christians in this city are excluded from participating in the Olympic celebrations with any integrity. Is that what you're saying? And uh, bless them. I mean, I wouldn't have liked to have been in their shoes that day. Can you imagine coming into work at the city council, these wretched wretched to intractable decisions to have to try to make about what to... Anyway, anyway, it's going ahead, is the point. Um, in, at the end of the day, they said, oh, go on then. Um, <laughs> I, think is the, I think is the feel of it. Um, so, put, put Monday the 9th of July in your diary, and please do turn up after we've said that it'll be really good. It'd be great to have everybody there. I guess what I'm trying to draw out in a number of different ways is these are the things that Peter and John faced. It's just what life's like today, actually. These same things. As Christians, we find ourselves unfairly lumped with other groups. People think of us as fundamentalists or whatever it might be. People want our positive contribution to society, but would just rather we didn't talk about it. And when you get into conversation with most thinking people about freedom of speech, people kind of love it, but are fearful of it as well, and aren't quite sure what to do with us. Yeah? yeah? And that's all true. So what, we're just going to get a little bit interactive this morning. I'd like to suggest that we take 
uh, four or five minutes, we turn around where we are and just chat to each other a little bit about, is this true? Is this what life is like for us today? And in as much as this is what life is like, how do we feel about that? We feel angry, confused, fearful, I don't know, quenched. It would just be really good to stop and think, how do we feel? And it will help us get some insight into what was going on for Peter and John. Okay? Go for it. Okay, let's come back together. What I have sought to do is to help us connect with the text by pointing out how we face similar challenges. Um, There are some answers here in this text as well in the example of Peter and John. So that's what we're going to look at next. And Look at how they went about speaking. So there's several different things that we can see in their speech, which is a great example and encouragement to us today. So the first thing to say is that they spoke freely. If we look in Acts chapter 4 and from verse 8, it says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke to them. And he said some things that were fairly... Well, I mean, you'd have to really be quite brave to say, like, it was you that crucified him. Um, It says in verse 13, they saw the courage of Peter and John. The word that's translated there as courage is the same word that, when it's in a slightly different sentence, comes out later in the chapter as the prayer to speak your word with great boldness and the answered prayer to speak the word of God boldly. There's a courage and a boldness in their speech, which actually was really striking. If we remember that this was the same Sanhedrin, same bunch of men, before whom Jesus had stood just a few months earlier. This same bunch of men had arranged Jesus' execution. And at that time, Peter had been present in the courtyard... It was there that he was questioned about whether he was part of this Jesus movement. The cock crowed three times. He by then had, so the cock crowed he had by then denied Jesus three times. This was the setting of fear, of real violence, of injustice, and of Peter's previous failure in the face of all of that. And Here they come again, this time, key difference, filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Sanhedrin, who presumably had seen the Jesus followers, the Jesus movement, scattered to the four winds just a few months ago, were astonished at what they now saw in Peter and John. A change had taken place. The fact that this freedom of speech came by the Holy Spirit is hugely encouraging for all of us. Because the Spirit is given freely, and Jesus gives the Spirit without measure. 
it specifically says that they also realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were not academics and they were not professionals. Their confidence hadn't come about because of their great learning. Learning's a fine thing, but it's not what had led to their confidence, to their boldness. That had come about because the Spirit of God came upon them and enabled them to speak freely. You know, we can debate the rights and wrongs of free speech and the legal legal questions over whether we have it. What, what am I free to say if I'm a, a nurse offering care to someone in the hospital? What am I free to say about the faith, my faith legally? Uh, if I'm a teacher in a classroom, what am I free to say? If I'm simply in an office where there are people of other uh, faiths or with a different sexual orientation, what am I free to say? Now, there's another issue here, which is that actually... Uh, Most of the time, we don't take hold of the freedom that we are sure we have legally. That is to say, the issue is largely an internal one for us. And there's a question as to whether the Holy Spirit is so filling us that we then have the freedom in ourselves to speak. I think that often that whole conversation... or thinking around what's the legal situation kind of misses the point. Because even if we were to get crystal clear clarity on what the legal situation is, what the policies are, most of us wouldn't actually speak up most of the time anyway. Yeah? And uh, it's, it's helpful to know whether we're breaking the law or not, obviously, or breaking employment policy in our workplace. But I'd like to suggest that this text draws our attention somewhere else and says, let's be filled with the Holy Spirit so that there is a freedom of speech that comes from an anointing. And without that, it doesn't really matter what the law says, frankly. Without that internal freedom. This, uh, this word that's translated a couple of different ways in Acts 4 is also used when they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek in the Septuagint in Leviticus 26, and I think this is really helpful to us. In Leviticus 26, and verse, reading from verse 11, God says to the people of Israel, I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. It's that phrase that is translated in Greek in the same words that's used in Acts 4, heads held high. God has worked in our lives, not so that we would continue to stumble around with the kind of sense of oppression that was once ours. But he set us free from the yoke of slavery to sin, to be his people, that we'd walk with our heads held high. That's what is going on here. The Spirit has come upon Peter and John, and they walk into the Sanhedrin, not cowed and nervous, but with their heads held high, because they've been set free. And so they can speak freely. They can speak as free men 
because of what God's done in their lives. We need that, don't we? You know, um, Cassie Sue had a picture earlier about the, uh, very encouraged, the spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. And that's a wonderful picture of Jesus raised from the dead, taking off the shroud and emerging with his resurrection body as who he really is. God wants to do that with us this morning, that where we've kind of somehow got covered up by the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. He wants to take off those covers and let us walk with and speak with heads held high as the people of God, because he's with us. So an amen. There was one over there. That's good. Any more? Amen. Amen. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. It's good. Okay. They they spoke freely. They also spoke with integrity. In verses 19 and 20, which you've already looked at a little bit already, they say, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. I mean, what else are we going to talk about? Here's our lives. Here's the things we've seen and heard. This is, you know, these are our lives. This is what reality is, you know, as we've experienced it. That's what we've got to talk about. We haven't got anything else to talk about. This is a light. This is, a, this is what we know. So, obviously, if we're ever going to open our mouths, what are we going to talk about? All we can talk about is what we've seen and heard, they say. It's funny, isn't it, how sometimes Christians are accused of being hypocrites, which means to say that we talk about things that are different from how our lives are lived. And people say, you're not worth listening to because you're a hypocrite, because your words don't line up with your life. Well, Paul is saying, it's not Paul, Peter and John are saying, we can't be hypocrites. You're asking us, in asking us to be quiet, you're asking us to be hypocrites. But what else can we do except speak with integrity about what we've seen and heard? Uh, It wasn't that long ago that um, Tony Blair, when uh, he was prime minister, made a speech to the Faith Works movement in which he basically argued that faith should be kept private. Which, at that point in his uh, speech-making, put him firmly on the side of the Sanhedrin, saying, we don't do God, Alistair Campbell's uh, famous phrase, that uh, actually, all of the, whatever you've seen and heard, you just need to keep quiet about it in the public sphere. Faith is private. So it was a great encouragement to hear our current Prime Minister say something different I don't know whether you picked this speech up when he was at Christ, when David Cameron was at Christchurch on the 16th of December last year, just up the road from here. He was talking about the King James translation of the Bible and saying to the assembled people from the Church of England, as it happens, these are direct quotes from what he said. Our language and culture is steeped in the Bible. To me, Christianity, faith, religion, the church and the Bible are all inherently involved in politics because so many political questions are moral questions, so I don't think we should be shy or frightened of this. And uh, we just need to hear that, don't we? That, I mean, 
there are still people around saying that faith should be... And people like Richard Dawkins, you know, shove all the faith into one corner, a private corner. But there are plenty of people who understand that faith belongs in the public sphere, that you can't pretend that it's just a private experience. And we need to... And they're not always... They're not always born-again Christians that are saying that. There's an understanding that, of course, faith motivates public service and needs to be talked about in public life. So Peter's argument, really, is that we need freedom in our speech in order to live honest lives. If we don't have freedom in our speech, we won't be living honest lives. A few months ago, uh, some of you were in our house. We had an, an evening with some people that we were doing some leadership training for. And those of you who've been in our house, which is quite a few people, know that you open the front door, and there's the stairs there. And then most of the downstairs is kind of open plan. So the front door is right by where everybody will sit down. So about, I don't know, a dozen or so people sat down, uh, just having tea and coffee, and about to start talking about, I don't know, what the subject for the evening was, but we're about to talk about something. And uh, one of our neighbours knocked on the door. And uh, this was a guy who I just decided recently, but before that, that I ought to make a bit of an effort, a bit more effort in getting to uh, connect with him. So I found out one or two things that were his interests. He'd been in the local press about something that he was interested in. I found, I'd gone over and tried, tried to connect with him. And there was a little bit of warmth growing. And uh, he came and knocked on the door whilst I had a room full of people about, you know, this far away from the front door, open space, all waiting for some leadership training. And uh, what I found myself doing just instinctively was instinctively just trying to close down the conversation with my neighbour as quickly as I could so that I could shut the door and get on with what I had to do, thinking to myself, I mean, not consciously, but just at an instinctive level, these are different parts of my life. And it's kind of awkward. The word awkward would really capture how I felt. I mean, no one had done anything wrong. I mean, you understand. And I mean, it's just, just an awkward moment. I'd love to spend some time with you, but look, this is going on. And um, later on, when everything, everyone had gone home and I reflected, I thought, what a complete plonker, really. Because that was a God-given opportunity to introduce someone that I was trying to get to know a bit more to some friends who are all good people. And actually, if we put the leadership training back three quarters of an hour whilst we all sat and had a cup of tea together, I think I'd have done a better job of modelling Christian leadership than whatever it was I talked about that evening that I can't remember anymore. They spoke with integrity. Whatever situation they were in, they spoke of what they'd seen and heard. And there's an encouragement to us to do the same. Lastly then, once they were released, they spoke together as the whole Christian community to God. They returned to the Christian community, explained what was going on, and they prayed, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And they recall how it was prophesied that there would be opposition from the nations to God's people and that Jesus went through it. And they remember 
they remember that God is on his throne. That whatever they're facing, whatever circumstance they're in, they follow a God who is greater. In the uh, late 4th century, there was a follower of Jesus called John Chrysostom. And he was brought before the Empress Eudoxia, the Roman Empress. And uh, she was a bit annoyed that he kept on preaching and telling people about his faith. And uh, she said to him, if you keep on with this, then I will banish you. And he replied saying, you cannot banish me for this whole world is my father's house. She said, well then, I'll kill you. He said, no, you can't kill me, for my life is hid with Christ in God. She said, well, I'll take away your treasure. He said, no, you can't, for my treasure's in heaven, and my heart's there too. She said, well, I'll drive you away from your friends, and you'll have no one left. And he said, no, you can't do that because I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. And these early Christians, with Peter and John, got hold of the same kind of truth. They remembered in prayer who God was. They got the right perspective on their situation. And... They remembered the inspiring example of Jesus, who himself went through these kinds of challenges, and they prayed, and they requested God for boldness, for courage, for the capacity to stand with their heads held high and to speak for him, and they asked for more miracles too. And what happened was that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all spoke the word of God boldly. I just think that's a wonderful, wonderful vision for us today. As we face the same kinds of circumstances, same danger of being misunderstood and lumped in together with other people, same confusion around as what, what do people really think freedom of speech means, what are we allowed to do, what are we not allowed to do, the same desire from people around us to embrace our actions but keep our mouths shut. We face all of that. What an amazing, amazing vision of a whole community of people all filled with the Spirit and speaking freely, heads held high. I was reminded of this. Um, And that there's a lot of us that have got the power of God in it. You know, we know we're children of God, but we're wandering around, we're wandering around a little bit. Clark Kent-like, keeping our identity quiet and secret. And uh, there's not so much good stuff that happens when Superman's identity is hidden as Clark Kent, but there's a freedom that God wants to give us. And uh, tearing off the shroud, tearing off the shroud by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did indeed set an example for us and you spoke plainly to people even when 
trouble might come your way. You spoke plainly before the Sanhedrin. You spoke plainly before Pontius Pilate. And you enable us now, likewise, just to speak plainly, to speak freely, to speak frankly and with integrity to the reality of the lives that we have, the experiences that we know, the things that we know actually to be true. And just as Holy Spirit, you fell on that body of people and filled them all, Lord, would you come now and fill each one of us? Everyone here who owns the name of Christ, everyone here who is a child of the living God, Holy Spirit, come and fill and fill. We, the other prophetic words earlier about finding life in you, that fresh water bubbling up, Holy Spirit's life. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Come and fill us afresh. Lord, we don't understand where the wind blows and how all of that spiritual stuff works, but we do know how to hoist a sail up into the wind just by saying, help me, Lord. I make myself available to you and ask that you would come and give me all of the boldness, all of the courage and strength that I need to be myself, to be the person that you've made me as a saint, as a child of the living God, to live according to my new identity in Christ, not hiding it under the old one, keeping that light under a bushel, but just shining as I am. Thank you, Lord, that you've made it really simple and that there's not like um, some complicated course we have to graduate through to become a professional Christian for whom it then all works. But you provide for us by your spirit. You change us and then you enable us to live openly the reality of who we are, what we've seen, what we've heard. I pray that in this coming week, we would see a difference in our conversations, in our speech, Lord. I ask for that. We would see that freedom. Uh, And I want to pray right now for brothers and sisters here who are thinking, that's all very well, but I don't know how it would work when I'm in that place. And I don't know how it would work with that person. Lord, I pray that that anxiety and fear would fall away. But as we see in this story, that being filled with the Holy Spirit does the trick, even when you're stood before an unjust council that might see you executed. Lord, if it works there, it works next to the water cooler at work with the rabid atheist. If it works there, it works in a hospital ward where we worry whether our patients will understand exactly what we're offering them at a spiritual level. It works and it works and it works. And we pray, Holy Spirit, for that anxiety to fall away and for a simple joy to characterize our lives in you in the coming week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.